For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we're in John 21. We're finishing out the book of John tonight. And Warren Wearsby is one of my favorite commentators. He says about this chapter in John, the average reader would have to conclude that John completed his, that, uh, that John completed his book with the dramatic testimony of Thomas, and the reader would wonder why John added another chapter. The main reason is the Apostle Peter, John's close associate in ministry, John did not want to end his gospel without telling his readers that Peter was restored to his apostleship. Apart from the information in this chapter, we would wonder why Peter was so prominent in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And so we have this event, we have this you know, issue with Simon Peter who had denied Christ and we're kind of left hanging about what happened, how was that resolved. We see Peter figuring prominently in Acts. And this chapter in the book of John is the bridge that completes the picture of what happened there. So when we talk about Peter, whose name was Simon, and then Jesus gave him a new name, Peter, it's, it's, it's helpful to understand some background about who this guy is. He was not a scholar. He was not a wealthy man. He was a nice blue-collar tradesman. He was a fisherman, grew up on the Sea of Galilee, probably was a family business that went back generations. Um, he was called by Jesus in a great little uh, section in Luke 5 where Jesus went fishing with him and uh, told him where to put his nets. It's funny, this carpenter who'd probably never fished on the Sea of Galilee tells this guy whose family's been fishing on the Sea of Galilee for generations, put your nets out here. He does it. He catches all this fish. And they begin to see the reality of who they're dealing with in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you think that's great? Come with me and you'll, um, and you'll be a fisher of men. And it's sort of this great vision of how Jesus sees Peter and how Jesus wants to work in Peter's life. So Peter leaves his business. There's this sort of dramatic scene at the end of Luke 5 where it says, you know, they got in and they had these nets full of fish. It was the best catch that anybody had probably ever had on the lake of, of Gennesaret or uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it says that they left their boats and everything they had, and they went to follow Jesus because they had found something better. And so he gave up everything. And when we look and you read through, students of the Gospels have noticed Peter seems to be a fairly impulsive guy. Whenever somebody says something weird and it kind of creates like a tumbleweed rolling across the room and crickets and everybody's like looking around, it's usually Peter who said it right? There's lots of examples of this when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, right? He's going, and it's like this really crazy thing. The God of the universe is washing the dirt and the excrement off his disciples' feet to show them that the person who's going to be their leader needs to be the servant of all. And he goes around, and Peter's like, you can't wash my feet. No, I won't allow it. And he's like, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Then he's like, also then wash my hands and my head and my face. And Jesus is like, it, your feet is good enough, Peter. Thank you. Right? He's always making these kinds of comments. There's this great moment at the transfiguration. They go up on a mountain, you know, and Moses and Elijah show up, Luke 9. And it says, as Moses and Elijah were getting ready to leave, Peter said, Jesus, said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make some tents, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah. And Luke notes, not really realizing what he was saying, that there's this picture of, you know, he just blurbs out, you know, these weird statements. He's, he's passionate. He's not somebody who necessarily thinks before he speaks. Another good example, Matthew 16, 21 says that uh, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He has to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He's laying out for them the entire events of, of, of about what are going to unfold, which is the master plan of the almighty, powerful God of the universe to save the human race. And Peter says, uh-uh, no, God forbid it. This shall never happen. And Jesus sternly rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Like, what are you talking about, Peter? This is the point. This is why I'm here. 
Peter's like, but I like you. <laughs> he's passionate. Uh, he's a, a very excitable person. In John 18, 10, when they come and, and the, the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas comes and betrays Jesus and they're coming to take him away. We read, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, you still don't get this. I'm meant to go to the cross. Stop trying to save me. That's not how this works. I'm going to save you, okay? And he's always doing this kind of thing. Yet Jesus does see something in Peter that's remarkable. His name is Simon, and he actually gives him a new name, which is Peter. In Matthew 16, 15 through 18, he says to him, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this is at a time where a lot of people weren't getting this yet. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Wow. Jesus clearly sees something. He's, Peter seems unstable. He seems sort of chaotic, right? And Peter looks at him and he says, you're, you're a rock, and you're going to do great things for my kingdom. And this is an interesting thing to look at, too, because this is the idea of vision, right? Jesus, as the rabbi, as the discipler, as the mentor, has something going on where he's looking at his guys and he's noticing things about him. And he doesn't just see who Peter is. He sees what Peter could become. He sees the potential of what all of this energy could be if it were focused towards the important things of God. And then he speaks this life-changing word, verse 18. Imagine God says to you, you're the rock upon which I build my church and hell will not prevail against you. How would that change your life? That sentence right there, you would just be like, yes, you know, like, whatever, I'm in. Like, oh man, like, that would just change everything. And, you know, to a lesser but still very important degree, we have this opportunity with each other to see the strengths within each other, to point out the potential that we have. How many lives have been changed here because of a sentence like this spoken by a trusted mentor or someone we respect? Jesus is doing this and, and grooming Peter for a very important role. But he's going to have to learn some hard lessons. In Luke 22, 31 to 33, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Jesus says to him, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That does not sound good. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. What do you mean I'm going to be tested? Test me. Bring it on, Satan, he says. I don't care. There's nothing I know in my heart and in my resolve that I will die defending you because you are Lord. And Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. Ooh, man. You know, that's got to hurt. That's got to really sting. You know, you're saying you're giving this vow of, of absolute loyalty to this man. And he's like, actually, before sunrise, uh, you're going to be telling everybody you don't know me. How can that be? And again, Peter, or Jesus does something with Peter that's really important about vision. While he sees his potential, he's also not oblivious to Peter's problems. Nor does he stay silent about them. While he speaks and casts this incredible vision of what Peter can become, he also acknowledges to Peter in a very straightforward, direct way what are the barriers for him to become it. He shows his disciple his potential. He warns him about his weaknesses 
and he prays for his success. Right there is probably a pretty good formula for being a good mentor. If you did those three things, you showed people their potential, you warned them of their weaknesses, and you prayed for their success, you would get very far in Christian ministry and working with people and helping people. Imagine you had somebody in your life who uh, was willing to think and process and observe and share with you what they thought your greatest potential was. Imagine they were pulling for you and eager to see you succeed, which also meant talking to you about your weaknesses. And then imagine they were committed to praying for your success. Who wouldn't want someone like that in their lives? And then also imagine that you have the opportunity to do that for others. That's exactly what is supposed to happen is we're supposed to have people who do this for us and then we are supposed to turn around and do that for others. What a beautiful vision of growing in the Lord together. Well, we know that Peter did deny Christ. We'll read the version in Matthew 26, 73 to 75. A little bit later after all that happened, Jesus gets hauled off and, he, and Peter has uh, been questioned and he's denied two times to different people. They're like, no, aren't you one of those disciples? And he's like, no, I'm not. And he's kind of following Jesus as he gets carted around for these different mock trials uh, and he's staying close by. And then finally, a little later, the bystanders came to Peter and said, surely you too are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and swear, I don't friggin' know the man. And immediately the rooster crows. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That sounds really bad, doesn't it? That same day, exactly what Jesus had told him would happen, would happen. But Luke is even more brutal in the detail. Luke says, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Oh, so they're like in a courtyard, and Jesus is like in the corner getting beaten up by a bunch of centurions. And he probably doesn't hear what Peter says. He just hears the, and Peter's standing there, and Jesus is across the way, and Jesus is like, oh, that would have hurt so bad. Jesus knew. He knew what had happened. And Peter knew what he had said, the boast, I will die for you. And clearly he thought he meant it, right? He was willing to go as far as pull out the sword and cut the guy's ear off. He was ready to rumble. But when it really came down to, will you give up your life? Is your love for Jesus greater than your instinct for self-preservation? Peter found out the real answer to that question. So Peter's failure was as great as his boasts. And Jesus had given him so much, had believed in him, warned him, prayed for him. And he had utterly humiliated, publicly humiliated himself. Yet, when we get to John 21, Jesus has gone to the cross. He's raised from the dead. And we still find Peter with the faithful, hanging out with the disciples. He's seen the risen Christ, but there hasn't been a personal interaction, a personal connection. It's been in like group settings, you know, and you got to put yourself in Peter's shoes. It's like, you know, and Jesus knows, but you haven't talked about it yet. The fact that you denied him three times while he was getting beaten by the centurions. And, you know, this is where John records this sort of intimate one-on-one -on -one conversation between Jesus and Peter before Jesus ascends to heaven. And so there you have the longest introduction to a passage that you probably will ever hear. John 21 is our passage tonight. John 21, verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. So they're hanging out. They know Jesus is risen. They've, they've seen him a few times. They just don't, they're not sure what to do next. They've been told to kind of wait. 
And Simon Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. So they said to him, we'll come also with you. So they went out and they got in the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But the day was now breaking. It was morning. And Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. So they're rowing in. They were hungry when they left. And they've been out there fishing all night. And they're coming in. There's someone standing on the shore. And Jesus calls out to him and says, children, do you, not, you don't, do you not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast the net and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. So Peter is still Peter, right? Everybody else is like, cool, you can swim, we'll take the boat, right? But Peter's like, Jesus, jumps into the water. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land. <laughs> you can just see the detail. The detail of like the author just being like, Peter. But about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew to the, the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So if you are somebody who's read through the Gospels and you've read some of the passages that we've been talking about, you know that there's something familiar about what's happening here, right? What is Jesus doing? He's reconstructing Peter's calling. Isn't that interesting? This is exactly like the moment when Peter first decided to follow Jesus. We can read about that in Matthew 4, Luke 5. Luke 5, 5 through 6, Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all day and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish that their nets began to break. So Peter's not sure what's going on. He's seen the risen Christ. He's still hanging out with the faithful, but he was supposed to be the rock upon which Jesus built his church, the rock in which the gates of hell would not prevail. Now he's... The guy that denied Christ three times right before he went on the cross. And Jesus shows up and recreates the scene of his calling. And I think the reason is, is because it's so important if you're going to figure out your path forward when you failed, it's important to go back to the beginning. What failure does is failure checks your motives and it reveals your heart, right? And so when you really care about something, you do something that really matters, that you feel energized and excited about, you have to go back to, you know, often once you fail, it's because you've been working really hard and you've been struggling really hard for a long period of time. And maybe your motives and why you do, why did you start doing this in the first place have become obscured. And to go back and think about and realize why you made this decision to head out in this direction to begin with is very important. Failure is key. There is nothing like it in terms of showing you your own heart. You see, we are very adept at lying to ourselves. No one can pull the wool over your eyes better than you, I guarantee it. It's part of the whole fickle human condition, the whole issue of who we are and how we're broken. We are so good at lying to ourselves. And failure will just bring out the truth of why we do what we do. Motives are always mixed. I doubt that any of us have done anything from pure motives ever. And if we did, it was because they were purely bad motives, right? <laughs> when have we ever done something really good from 100% pure motives? Our motives are always mixed. And that mixture of motives, that sense of why am I doing what I'm doing and I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing for totally the right reason, we all get caught up in the conflict of that. And we have to not let 
the mixture of motives stop us from doing the right thing. We can't be like, well, I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm not sure I'm doing it for the right reasons. We should just do the right thing and let God sort out the motives. But failure will bring us to that point where we will see what is on our heart. And if you take Peter and you take Judas, you realize that these are two disciples who failed in a massive way. And Judas's motivation was self. He wanted something. He was trying to accomplish something that he wanted for himself. And when he failed, he quit and he even killed himself. Peter, on the other hand, it appears as though his motive for serving was gratitude. And so he perseveres. And I want to unpack that a little bit further. I think there are two main reasons for serving God, two motives. And, you know, obviously there's a mix, like I said. But if we're to kind of divide it and separate it and look at the two ends of it, one would be a motive for his self-serving. We serve God for our reasons and for our purposes. We want to get rich. We want to get famous. We want to get God to back an agenda that we have, right? Like, I'll do all these things for you, God. You just give me this thing that I want over here, or you just don't let me suffer in this way. We have these deals that we make with God. I'll do what you want, God, as long as you do a few things that I want. Deal? Deal. This is what Judas's approach was. Sometimes we serve and we step out to kind of put ourselves forward as being spiritual or wise or having something to offer others. And it's really because we want to control other people. When we serve for self, we get what, the results that we want or we quit. It's that simple. Why am I going to do this if I'm not getting what I want out of it, right? Have you ever done that? I don't know how many times I've done that, where you're like, you fail at something and you're like, why am I even doing this? Like that moment right there is the great moment. That moment where you're saying, why am I even doing this is the moment where failure has come in to teach you its most and give you its most important gifts. That's the moment. Why am I even doing this? And surely... Self-serving will be on the menu as you think through why it is that you're doing what you're doing, right? But then there's also just a gratitude response. This is something that God wants to be our fuel. God wants us to be motivated to serve others because he has filled us so much with his love, his truth, his word, his power, and his spirit that literally our cup runs over into the lives of everyone else around us. The love of God comes through us to others because the love of God cannot be contained. That we experience the greatness of who God is and what he's done for us. That we get so excited about it, we start to want to do the things that God has done for us to other people. Because it's good. And not only does it feel good to be loved by God, it feels good to be loved, to love others and have God love them through us. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for what God has done. What do you get the God that has everything? You love his children. You serve his people. That's what he says. He says, if you want to love me, love my children. And you think about that and you know, that makes a certain amount of sense. But then you become a parent and it makes tons of sense. You want to ingratiate yourself to a parent. Be really fantastic to their children. You know, what parent would see somebody just really serving and being a wonderful influence on their children and just be like, I hate them? <laughs> like, that's just twisted and sick, right? Like, it's like, people who love your kids are amazing people. You're so grateful. You feel so loved personally when somebody does something great for your kids, and God says, that's, that's how he feels too. And so if we want to love God, if we want to express our love to God, a primary way that we can do that is by loving his creation. Yeah. 
We do it because we decide God is worthy of that sacrifice. We're going to sacrifice our time, our money, our energy, whatever we have, our emotional resources, not because we're like insisting that it have this effect on others, but because God has given it to us, and it's a great way for us to express that love back to him. That gratitude moves us to want to help others because God moved others to help us. And in that case, I mean, results are good. You want the way that you serve. You don't want to just be what, what Paul talks, boxing the air, right? You don't want to just do stuff and like, I don't care if it works or not. I'm just going to do it. No, you want to serve in a way that matters. You want to serve in a way that's effective. But the effectiveness is not the point. So if only we could learn this. The results are not the point. They're important. But they're not the point. What's important is we're trying to love and serve God. He is great. He has inspired us with his greatness. And in our efforts, we step out in connection with him to try to show others how great he is. And we want that to work. But even when it doesn't work and it doesn't have less value in terms of God's perspective. And these are the two paths, right? And failure will bring you to wrestle with these two guys right here. These two, am I coming at this from a self-serving motive or am I coming at this from a gratitude motive? Failure will test your resolve. It will show you what's in your heart. Do I do this because it feels good? Do I do this because it gets me what I want? Or do I do this because I believe it is true? Oh, how often have we failed and asked ourselves these questions? And the only time that we would be crazy enough to persevere, even though we keep failing, is if because we believe it's true. That's the only thing that will get you through. That's it. The others will wear you out. You'll be worn down to a nub You'll be bitter, you'll be burned out, and you'll quit. And we've all been there. So what does Jesus do? In the wake of Peter's public and grandiose failure, he like recreates the scene of the beginning of where this whole thing started. It's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, he's God, so you can expect him to be brilliant, but still, it's brilliant. This is a direct message to Peter alone. Peter, we're still here, and I'm still calling you. I still want you to be fishers of men. Imagine Peter's heart, the conflict in that moment. You know, I wonder if he was feeling like he was reliving a nightmare or in a dream. Oh, my God, Where, why is he doing this? He's recreating the scene that led to my failure of him. Why? He takes him back to the beginning. And what he's doing is he's reminding Peter that his faith is rooted in truth. Why did Peter leave those boats on the shore? Why did he do it? Because he saw something Amazing in the person of Jesus Christ. Something that was better than a boat full of fish. And he decided to act on what he had seen. He heard Jesus teach. He saw God, the hand of God behind Jesus' teaching. And he said, whatever this is, wherever this goes, I want to be a part of it because it's real. It was based on truth. So we keep reading John 21, 15. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had asked him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. So he not only recreates the scene of of Peter's calling, he also recreates the scene of Peter's failure. That's kind of bizarre. You know, you'd look at this and you're just like, Peter denied Christ three times, and so Christ shows up, resurrected, and asks him if he loves him three times. Do you love me? What is that about? It seems a little brutal, right? Like, in our culture, we do not talk about failure. In our culture, failure and humiliation and shame, these are the worst possible things. And so when somebody has some kind of giant, colossal public failure, what do you do? What's the polite thing to do? Just pretend like it didn't happen. Don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. Don't make them relive the moment. Just, you know, push on like nothing happened. That seems like the merciful thing to do. And, you know, that's how we see this. Can't this just be an unspoken understanding? I mean, Jesus, you're here. You're doing the fish. That must mean we're okay. You made me breakfast. Do we have to talk about it? If you don't know Jesus like you should, then you might think, well, maybe he's being cruel. But that's, that's, there's not a cruel bone in his body. That's not how he operates. He's doing something else. The reality is, is I think that if Peter had not brought it up, if Jesus had not brought it up with Peter, it may very well have resulted in Peter being spiritually crippled the rest of his life. Jesus is not there to twist the knife in Peter's ribs. He is there to pull it out and set him back on the path with the vision that he gave him all those years earlier. He's there to let him know that the plan is still on. And that's amazing. The way to restoration from failure is the acknowledgement of the wrong and an agreement to move forward. Sometimes we go through these things and we feel so much shame. What is the shame that we feel in failure? It is the disappointment in ourselves And the humiliation that we imagine that everyone else is having. Negative thoughts about us being weak or being incapable. That's the shame that we feel. But that is really only a barrier. That shame is the biggest barrier you're going to have to overcome. To reaching success. Failure is a part of learning. And it's when our shame shuts us down and makes us too afraid to ever step out again that the enemies of God have won. And Jesus is not going to let that happen with one of his. To the point where he's going to show up, he's going to make a special appearance just for Peter, and he's going to recreate this whole scene, and he's going to go directly to the heart of the issue Peter, you denied me three times. Let's look at this a little more closely. 21.15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, and this is presumably in front of everybody, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord. Now the Greek here is a little bit interesting, and commentators are kind of divided on this, but what Jesus asks is, do you agape me? Agape is the word for Greek love that is like the way that God loves us. Agape is the highest form of sacrificial love. So when Jesus turns to Peter and says, do you agape me? You know, the thought is, is that he's saying, do you love me more than anything? Do you love me like God loves? And Peter's response is, you know that I philia you, which is like brotherly love. Do you love me with the ultimate love? Well, I love you with a good love. (laughs) Is sort of what's happening here. Now, some commentators you read will say, well, they use these words interchangeably and it doesn't mean anything. But then, you know, 
Others make the point, why have it be different? And it sort of fits with something that we see here, that we, an important lesson that we can learn. So we should be open-minded about this. Uh, but I'm, I'm very attracted that there's a purpose happening here. And let me show you what I think it is. I think Jesus is saying, do you love me, Peter, with your whole self? And Peter is saying, you know, I love you, but clearly it doesn't go as far as I had boasted. I once before said that I loved you and I was willing to die for you, and then I proved that that was wrong. He acknowledges the reality of his limitations. And what does Jesus say? Then love my people. Serve my children, shepherd my sheep. And then Jesus says again, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I filia you. And Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. And then in the last one, Jesus says a third time, Simon, son of John, do you filia me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know you're the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe. You know that I filia you. Wow, that's really interesting, isn't it? And the response is the same, tend my lambs. I think Peter learned something powerful, and it's right in the wheelhouse of Peter's weakness, right? Peter isn't out there. He's a sanguine. He's, you know, the mouth and the brain aren't always connected, and he obviously has uh, an overabundance of confidence in his own faith, Right? And so for someone like that to learn to, make a sh- to become a shrewd evaluator of self is a difficult process. And what he's saying here is, I learned that I have a fallen nature and that I, I can believe with all the passion in my heart that I'm willing to die for you, yet when the rubber hits the road, apparently I'm not. I learned the truth of who I am. I learned that my emotions and my dedication to you are strong, but they are not as strong as I thought. And you're God, and we both know what's in my heart. I think he learned the humility to admit his failure. Lord, I wish that I agaped you. But the most that I can say at this point with confidence is philia. And I think he's demonstrating something that all leaders, all people, everyone who wants to be an influencer for God needs to deeply understand, which is an understanding of his or her own weakness and limitations. I am not the rock. I am not the answer to all of your ministry problems. I am not perfect. I am far from it. And I have failed you, and I promise you, I will fail you again, is the sense of Peter's humility in this situation. Yet, he would say, but I'm here. I'm here. Andrew Murray, in his book, The Deeper Christian Life, on this scene, writes this. Remember, it's quite possible, if you use your failure rightly, to be far nearer Christ after it than before. Use it rightly, I say. That is, come and acknowledge in me there is nothing, but I am going to trust my Lord unboundedly. Let every failure teach to cling afresh to Christ, and he will prove himself a mighty and loving helper. The presence of Jesus restored. Yes, Christ took him by the hand and helped him. And I don't know whether they walked hand in hand those 40 or 50 yards back to the boat or whether Christ allowed Peter to walk beside him. But this I know, they were very near to each other. And it was the nearness of the Lord that strengthened Peter. There are certain lessons deeply important lessons that all leaders, all servants, all those who would step out to be used by God in some way need to to learn. And many of the most important of those lessons can only be learned in failure. So Jesus reconstructs Peter's calling. He reconstructs his failure 
but he also reconstructs his vision. At the same time, as he asks him, do you love me? He says, then shepherd my sheep. What is he saying? He's saying, Peter, you are just as much a part of the plan as you ever were. Nothing has changed here. You are Peter. You are not Simon. You have a job, and that job is to be the rock, to be the leader of my church as we move forward. Jesus' trust and faith in Peter, it's a weird thing to think about. I really wrestled with that. Is it Jesus' faith in Peter? It absolutely is. Jesus' ability to trust Peter with something great is unshaken. That's something to think about right there. Peter failed the trial. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, listen, I've been praying for you. You're going to come and you're going to go through a horrible ordeal. And I'm just praying that you persevere. And what happened? Peter failed the test. Yet, he's still there. By persevering, he lost nothing. His role is diminished in no way because he failed the test. In fact, what he's gained is maturity and a sense of dependence that he is going to need Jesus more than ever if he is going to play the role that Jesus has for him to play. He did not agape Jesus. The definition of agape, according to Christ himself, the highest form of love, greater agape has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. You cannot agape any more than dying for somebody or in their place. And Peter failed to love Jesus this way, even as Jesus was engaged in loving Peter this way. He failed, but he didn't quit. He stayed the course. He stayed with the faith of community. He stayed with the people. He felt the prying eyes. You ever do that? You ever fail in some way and you walk into a room and you're, you're just imagining everybody's looking at you because we're all megalomaniacs who think people are doing nothing but thinking about us all the time. And you're like, oh, see that look that that person just gave me? They're judging me. That person over there, they didn't say hi to me. That's because they know about my failure. And we start to build this case about everyone around us. And we leave. We quit. We fade into the shadows because we just can't take how unforgiving and judging everybody else is. When in reality, that wasn't the case. And I'm sure Peter was enduring that. I was the rock who denied Christ. And he's just sitting there thinking, Everybody's, no one's going to follow me. Everybody thinks I'm, I'm terrible. But Peter was also the one that said, where would we go? You have the words of life. I'd rather be at the bottom of Jesus's community than at the top of any other community. I'd rather be with the people of God, the, lowly, the lowliest among them. And so he stayed and bore the humiliation and was restored reconnected and history tells us he would get another chance to die for his savior and he did all the early church fathers are unanimous in claiming that peter died in rome by crucifixion during the persecution of nero in 64 a.d now there is some debate some people and some of the records say that he was crucified upside down because he wouldn't he refused to be crucified the same way that his lord was that was that's uh, we don't know that that could have come later that could have that sounds like kind of the thing that maybe they made up but what is undeniable is peter agape jesus christ he died refusing to deny that Jesus was Lord and risen from the dead. And Peter and Jesus obviously knew that Peter would get there. He would go all out and all in for the things that mattered to God. So when we fail, 
whether it's things like you want or see an opportunity to share your faith and you don't. When somebody asks you, hey, you want to teach a men's group, a women's group, you want to teach a home church, and you flop. And you can just feel it while you're doing it, and people have horrified looks on their faces, you know? And it just feels the weight, the pressure is crushing down. I know because I've done it. When you mentor somebody who walks away and decides, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, and they blame you and are angry at you because you didn't do the things for them that they wanted you to do. When you need to confront somebody and you chicken out, when you fall into sexual temptation, whether that's in practice uh, with another person or on the internet or whatever it is, when you try to lead a home church and it doesn't last, or when God calls you to do anything and your answer is no, that is failure. But it is also an opportunity. It is only true failure if you decide not to persevere. If you decide this isn't worth it, I'm not getting what I want out of this, and it doesn't matter whether or not it's true, it sucks, it hurts, and I'm out. When that happens, you become defeated or you learn to become more dependent on Jesus. Failure will lead you to one of those two places. There is no middle ground. It's impossible. It's really impossible to be indifferent about failing in things that are important. And that will either become an opportunity for you to be closer to Christ and depend on him more or to go down a terrible road of self-destruction. And that's what happened with Peter and Judas. There's so much that we can learn from failing. We learn how to improve our methods. We don't want to fail, and nor should we set out and say, you know what, I haven't done it in a long time, failed. I think it's about time for me to experience some learning from failure. Don't worry, that will take care of itself, I promise you. It will. Our methods matter, and we should strive and seek to improve the way that we do things. But we should also learn that dependence, that moment of understanding how much we need God if we're going to do things that matter in eternity. Failure teaches us insight into our character deficiencies. You will see new elements of yourself. And that is also very embarrassing, very shaming. When all of a sudden you learn that there's this thing about yourself that everybody else about you knew and you had no idea. Now, do we get pissed about that and start attacking the people who revealed it? Or do we get small before God and in gratitude say, thank God I now know this and I can bring it to you. We learn grace through failure. If there were no failure, there would be no need for grace. We learn the greatness of who God is, the generosity, the boundless love and mercy that God has for people who fail. If you were to never fail, and if you're not experiencing failure on a regular basis, I would argue that you're playing it too safe. That you are being too conservative and too fearful about saying yes to God. If you're saying yes to God, on a regular basis, he will lead you into failure because it is exactly what you need. God is the God of second, third, and fourth chances. He's the God of, of many chances. And for believers who fail, all he asks is that we continue and we persevere with him. But also for seekers, those who don't believe but that are trying to figure out what truth is. God is the God of many chances for them. And there are people that believe they've gone too far down the path. They're like Darth Vader, it's too late for me, I'm on the dark side. That is not how God works. There is no one that is so far that God can't reach them. There is no one that has failed so terribly and who has shaken their fist at him so vehemently that he will not welcome them in as a son or daughter into his kingdom. 
I'll lead you with Lamentations 3.21 to 26. He says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. And if you are here tonight and you don't know the greatness of God's love, let me just ask you to take a moment to invite him into your life right now. You have nothing to lose. You will only be introduced to the most loving, most merciful, most compassionate God through the death of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, let's get out there and let's work hard and let's serve and let's fail and let's persevere and let's love one another and let's encourage one another and let's pick each other up and keep going because it's true. There you have the book of John. Yeah, I just pray, God, I know that there are people here tonight that are struggling, that feel like failures, that are struggling and fighting shame. And um, I just pray, God, that you will give them freedom that they could uh, rely on you, understand what went wrong, and, and resolve to persevere and become those people like Peter who get chance after chance after chance and, and finally do succeed um, in, in manifesting your glory. We pray that you'll be with us as we hang out here tonight. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.